welcome to Chinese Revolutions, a podcast about how China came to be the way that it is today, looking at modern Chinese history through the lens of Chinese revolutionary movements, starting with the Opium War in 1839, working forward to the present day. I am your host, Nathan Bennett. I lived in China for seven years, and this podcast is for me a love letter and farewell letter to that country. To start off, uh, if you'd like to support the podcast, uh, please rate and review on all platforms, share with your friends. You can support monetarily by going to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast. Hosting is coming up for renewal. Um, you can go to the substack, chineserevolutions.substack.com. Uh, tell me what to do at the substack, chineserevolutions at gmail.com. Just send me an email, tell me what you think. Um, love, would love to hear from you. Okay, here we go. We're getting back into the Taiping Rebellion. There are two main items on the agenda one, to finish the story, and two, see how I can switch over to the new format, starting with the current topic. Uh, we're probably going to do more biographical deep dives, focus more on international context um, for the era, like, after the Taiping Rebellion. Um, if we focus on international context, it's going to be specifically the models that China is pushing against, that it, what it's copying, what it's going to be adapting for its own use. Um, it's not going to be the story of foreign politics, because this is the story of Chinese politics. Uh, again, we're following the book Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom, China, the West, and the Epic Story of the Taiping Civil War by Stephen R. Platt. So to review briefly where we've been, the Taiping were kind of maybe winning, but they couldn't close the deal on winning the war. Zheng Guofan, a Confucian bureaucrat turned general, for he was forced to be creative to come up with an army to defeat the Taiping. He's hanging in there like a raccoon working on choking out an elephant. Um... And with some of the numbers you're going to hear later, uh, you'll see why that is. Britain and France conducted a second opium war to settle things with the Qing authorities about concessions, trade policy, uh, diplomatic relations, etc. They, they burned a summer palace in Beijing. Uh, the British government and public kind of had a two-sided view of the conflict. Kind of, yay, we showed them! And... Also, why did we even go in there? It's kind of like the American retrospective on the 2003 invasion of Iraq. I remember supporting it when I was in high school. Like, yeah, we're going to take out the bad guys, free the people of Iraq. Uh, but now the uh, now my thinking is the United States military action broke so many things that have not been satisfactorily repaired. Uh, the terrorists of you know, ISIS uh, came around and destroyed so many more things, killed so many more people who it would have been nice to leave alive. Like you know, those people who you know stand up and protest when something's going wrong, and then those people get killed. Well, 
you have to grow those kinds of people. You have to raise them. But then when they've been systematically annihilated, that's the kind of people you want to form the backbone for a good society. But a lot of those people have been killed. Um, um, so many more things. So many millions of individual tragedies. Um, so there's you know, kind of the two-sided view of the conflict. The British did understand that the, the, the Qing were a foreign dynasty, so there was some sympathy for the Taiping as a Chinese rebellion to regain control of their own country, but there was also substantial ignorance about the nature of the Taiping. Some thought they were Christian, others thought they were close enough to being Christian that they were kind of a foot in the door for Christianity. Uh, let's look at France at the time under Napoleon III. It, it was kind of an attempt to go back to the glory days of Napoleon I uh, when Karl Marx wrote that uh, that when history is repeated, like the, the first time it's a tragedy, the second time it's a farce, apparently Napoleon III was the farce he was thinking of. Um, I'm remembering this off the top of my head. It's not in my notes, so if I'm so I might have it slightly wrong. But Napoleon the Third was a farce that uh, Marx was thinking of. It uh, was kind of an alternative to the British model for how to have a modern European state. Uh, you know, like land power kind of thing. Uh, definitely, he was definitely interested in getting involved in great power activity, throwing France's weight around. Uh, the Qing dynasty still existed. They weren't very powerful on their own, but they still held the essential qualifications for legitimacy as rulers of China. While there were still people out there who believed in them and could get around to fighting for them, they were still a force to be reckoned with. One reason why the British and the French didn't destroy the Forbidden City uh, was that they didn't want to deal with you break it, you buy it. You know, what happens when you decapitate the leadership of a continental power and then have to clean up afterwards? It's like, somebody's got to keep order, and you're the one with the guns, so it's you. Um, the, the British already were dealing with India, the French were dealing with their own colonial empire in Africa, Southeast Asia. One thing we can see from how far the imperial powers went, and how far they didn't go, and why they were ultimately defeated, you know, decades later, even when you are victorious in war, that doesn't mean you're the infinitely powerful top dog. Uh, you win the war with what you have, but you try to wrap things up and not have another war right afterward. They had the power to defeat Chinese forces in certain contexts, but they wanted wealth through business and trade, not through extraction by conquest, not in China anyway. Their power was strong enough to give China something to react to, something for nationalists to see and push against, but it wasn't such that it completely overpowered Chinese civilization and led to a total domination by European powers. They saw new ways of doing things, but it was going to be a reinvented China, 
doing those things. That, yeah, they, they had an example of new technology, new tactics, new polit political structures, uh, but it was going to be China doing those things. You know, even if, say, the nationalists had won the Chinese Civil War, well, the Chinese strategic imperative for protecting itself from outside powers, well, China is one of the big powers. It's not one of the little ones, it's one of the big ones. So there could still be tension between China and America today, even if even if a different side of the Chinese Civil War had won and not the communists. Um, China is too big to absorb like a smaller power. It has too much cultural cohesion to assimilate way... You know, and it was too far from Europe for sustained conquest to be kept up. I watched a YouTube video about the about why the Dutch in Indonesia lost so quickly to the Japanese. Well, that's because the military forces in Dutch-occupied Indonesia were like the tenth thing on the Dutch military priorities, whereas Indonesia was number one on you know, Japanese priorities at the time, that as that that's what was going to wind up happening, that the Dutch Far East um, uh, military forces, they were going to lose. Uh, they, it was good enough to maintain a colony, but not really continue conquering, not to defend against a determined outside invader. So what the British were trying to do at the moment was enforce their treaty rights, according to the treaty with the Qing government to trade up and down the Yangtze. Uh, they had river access. Uh, the river access in and out of China played to the needs and strengths of foreign powers. You sail in, in a ship, you unload exports, load up imports for international markets, sail out. Uh, it doesn't take too many people, maybe keeps maintains some warehouses and storefronts, uh, so that you can you know, do your purchasing, so then when the ship comes in, you can load it up with stuff right there. But it's uh, light on personnel, heavy on technology. But the river... You know, so then when we, as we get closer into the actual story here, the river cut through land borders between Qing-held territory and Taiping-held territory. And a quirk of the new dimensions of, uh, you know, after the Second Opium War is there are treaty ports now far inland uh, in some areas that are hotly contested in the fighting. And you know, for foreign powers, they just, what they want is just let us come in, go, come and go with our ships. We don't really have time to settle the vagaries of local politics. We just want business to flow. The spice must flow. Um, the essential nature of the Taiping was going to keep them from accommodating the foreign powers uh, in the long term. They were an interested party in an all-or-nothing civil war, and if you look at how the 
son who was appointed the heir of Hong Xiuquan, the heavenly king of the Taiping movement, uh, he was executed by slow slicing. Like, like they cut little pieces off you until you die. Um, you know, and if you're lucky, the, you know, here, neck, the, the third slice will be right out of your jugular. Oh my goodness, he's dead. That's if you're lucky. Um, just to make sure that the Taiping were killed thoroughly dead. If they, they if they lost, that's what was going to happen. They lost, so that happened. Uh, they were what we have come to term in this podcast a weird little Chinese cult. Um, and I don't mean that to disparage Chinese religion. I mean that they were one of the they were one of the perennial highly destructive um led by an eccentric led by you know a um a guy absorbed with his own visions like he's not following teachings from outside himself he decides that he is the prophet um, he decides that he is the literal son of God. If you're going to call yourself the son of God, you had better be. Like, there, there's no other way of thinking about it where it gets that you... So that's that's what was going on. They had aspirations to be the next Chinese destiny dynasty. Gosh, that's an embarrassing one to mix up. Um, they're trying to be the next Chinese dynasty. They're not just the neighbors of the Qing dynasty, they were actively trying to supplant the Qing dynasty. The, you know, so for whatever, so the, the Taiping for the later communists are going to be like an example of peasant rebellion against, um, you know, against foreign powers, namely the Manchu this time, um, peasant rebellion against rich oppressors. Um, communism at least has going for it that it's a system that you can run without having to be more insane than being power-hungry, that there are predictable strategies, there are predictable predictable political priorities that though brutal are it, it's it there is a system oh. okay so the the so some of the british ideas that are in play i'm i'm skipping over a lot of the story because um the cuz we're i'm trying to get back to the chinese story uh, excuse me. Some of the British ideas, like they wanted to use like the treaty ports as oases of stability from which to conduct trade. You can give local traders a place where they could count on reliable business partners. You give foreign traders consistent entry exit points for trade with China. And naturally, this is guaranteed by foreign armed force. 
It's a violation of Chinese sovereignty. It's an imposition of foreign ideas, priorities, and interference. And the British did make some agreements with the Taiping, but the real questions are, how much control did the Qing or the Taiping central authorities have over their forces in the field to where they could uh, punish deviation from the agreement or like, like, you know, if there's some guy in the field who sees things better than they do in the capital and decides to make a stand and everything turns against foreign powers, well, how, how do you keep that from happening? Like, how do you enforce the agreement without, you know, just having China, um, the Chinese market be, um, you know, be at the mercy of foreign powers. Would the uh, would the ultimate agenda of any party, Qing, Taiping, foreign powers, preclude the fulfillment of any agreement? That's the other real question. Like, so the, the Taiping want to be the replacement Chinese dynasty. Well, the thing is, they're friendly to foreigners while they're the rebels. But what if they do take ultimate power and something go and as the Taiping are setting themselves up, like fully unpacking all of what they think about themselves, how's that going to are are they gonna have to renegotiate? Um, are they gonna have to How's how's that going to work? Well, okay, to to wrap this all up, this isn't the end of the episode, by the way. Um, We have the Boxer Rebellion coming up. That's decades after the Taiping Civil War. We have a lot of work to do to capture the essence of late Qing Dynasty China, various attempted reforms, the thwarted reforms, the conditions that are inspiring the Chinese who will make the decisions leading to the overthrow of the Qing Dynasty, the examples that Qing re- that Chinese revolutionaries will take from foreign enclaves in China, and we have to finish the story of the Taiping Rebellion. I'm going to focus on the story of Zhang Guofan and his army because it's the most interesting to me personally and is way, way less covered than whatever foreign intervention in the war accomplished. Okay, so I just so I just had kind of a bit about okay, the, the British are trying to reach into China up the Yangtze River to try to work on their treaty ports. Okay, this is going to come back in the story that we're going to get to just now. I, As I was putting the notes together, I just thought, you know what? We're going to start now. We're going to work on the story of Zhang Guofan. Zhang Guofan is still where we last left him, uh, working on besieging the city of Anqing, critical to controlling passage on the Yangtze. Remember that China is really, really rugged. It's not until the founding of the People's Republic of China that they were able to really start covering China in railroads and highways. Like when you know, some of the Red Guards, so when some of the young people are being sent down to the countryside in uh, the Cultural Revolution in China's 60s and 70s, they had peasants still asking 
Like, who's the emperor now? Like, that's how long it took for a lot of this to, to catch up. Um, so, uh, trade, like, if you really wanted to trade and travel and things, it had to go by river. Even today, a river ferry is basically a regional bus, not just a tourism thing. I remember taking a ferry down a, uh, it was kind of a branch off of the Yangtze, um, uh, like it would stop at various points. Like, what in the world is going on? It, it's a bus. It's basically a bus. Um, and so Tsang Guofan is moving toward the ultimate goal of the Taiping capital in Nanjing. Um, the Taiping had some roving field armies, and all their top leaders were in Nanjing. They needed to keep lines of communication open. They needed, um, also, legitimacy, strategic direction, coordination. Like, so if you don't get new communication from the Heavenly King, you're just kind of out there running your own thing. Um, you know, like, like some people are really good second-in-command types. Other people can be the guy on top. And then you have everyone who thinks they can be the guy on top, but they stink at it. Well, like, if you have a guy who's a second-in-command type trying to make number one guy-in-command decisions, it breaks down over time. You have to have the strategic coordination. You need to have the messaging from HQ telling you what to do. Well, Tsang Fan is trying to cut that, cut the head off the movement. Uh, the the main leader with a substantial military force holding on Qing moved out to help another Taiping commander who was lifting the siege of Nanjing by regular Qing forces. Um, to give you an idea of what uh, An Qing was like at the time, uh, the Taiping treated cities they ruled basically like an urban military camp. Um, there, there are lots of houses empty because it's just people have moved out because they don't want to be around when the war comes to visit. They, uh, or maybe they've joined the army or something. So lots of houses empty. The wood is torn out to be used for fuel or whatever else is needed. Um, bricks are used to repair city walls, uh, to build new forts to sustain the defenders in the siege, and newly opened spaces are used for vegetable gardens. We're going to see the same thing in rebel-held Nanjing when we finally get up there. So a holding force was left in Nanjing. It's not seasoned troops, but they're well-provisioned to withstand a siege. Uh, Zheng Guofan moved his forces in to besiege Anqing, so there's the besieging forces, and then some way away is Zhong Guofan's uh, headquarters. He sent his brother to lead soldiers to lead the siege. Uh, the Taiping attempted to break the siege, but failed. Um, uh, the Qing the allied forces had cavalry units that were able to beat off one of the a Taiping forces sent to relieve the siege. The Taiping were moving forces up the river, you know, like a hundred thousand men, like it's nothing, to retake what is now Wuhan. And so they were trying to see if they could 
relieve An Qing on the way. They ultimately had to move around. Uh, one of Zhang Guofan's main concerns was keeping the loyalty of the people. Uh, he heard about peasant laborers being paid with moldy grain. He insisted they be paid with silver. Like, is he, he's really struggling to preserve the reputation of the Hunan army. And this is really, really important because, above all, this is a political struggle to preserve the Qing dynasty, to preserve the legitimacy of the ruling dynasty of China, that the Taiping are 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 criticizing the Qing rulers for being foreigners, for being uh, bad leaders. And so I, I'm going to be summarizing a lot of, you know, by the seat of Zhang Guofan's pants, a lot of on the edge of his seat, a lot of very, very tense back and forth, losing, barely saving, a lot of struggle to stay in the fight. He has a close call with a huge Taiping army coming near his headquarters. Most of his troops are besieging the city of Anqing. Um... Well, a relief force did beat off that Taiping army, and that Taiping army was trying to get through to a part of the country with a potential for several hundred thousand new recruits. So, like their 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 plan was to go you know, much further down rather than to fight right there. So, their their heart, the Taiping didn't have their heart in that fight. Um, Zhang Guofan had everything going brutally back and forth all the time, never quite sure he was going to make it, that these huge Taiping forces were retaking cities that he had taken, like that he was losing things everywhere. Um, his supply lines would get cut off. He would barely get them reopened. He keeps writing letters back home that his sons shouldn't become military men, the writing that everything's about to fail. But it doesn't fail. Um, like, it's... Like, as I, as I flip through uh, Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom, uh putting these things together, it's like, I don't, like, there is no Netflix series, there is no nothing that could keep up the tension on a guy like this did on Zangofan. Somehow, like, somehow he was lucky enough, and somehow he was in it enough to not give up. Okay, so upriver from the siege of Anqing uh, in what is modern Wuhan, which is kind of a cluster of three or four cities, uh, a British diplomat is going in to tell the Taiping not to mess with British possessions. 
no matter how the Taiping try to negotiate something that lets them continue their huge military effort in the area to take that cluster of cities on the Yangtze, the British don't allow it. The critical thing in warfare, you have to be the one setting the terms of the conflict. You have to be the one setting the rules of the game. Like in the American Civil War, uh, the like roughly contemporaneous with the Taiping Rebellion, the Union was able to keep European powers out by diplomacy and by naval blockade that you know there were uh, foreign military observers observing the rebel side but they never got british or french or other recognition um, though european weapons were brought in i mean money is money uh, no one came in on the side of the confederacy well in the case of the taiping civil war uh, foreign powers were directly interfering. And so this depletes the credibility of the Qing dynasty. This also uh, depletes the potential for the Taiping to actually maybe win. Because you know, you know, they've got their their stuff going on in China, the foreigners do, and they're not going to let the Taiping do what it takes to win. Because you, you're not messing up our warehouses and things. So the, so eight months into the city, siege of Anqing, foreign blockade runners could resupply the Taiping defenders at high prices. Markets carried on outside the walls between the Taiping and the Qing loyalist besiegers, where the where Sun Guofan's forces needed money, the Taiping needed food. Uh, you'd actually have commerce. Like, like that's one of the weird things that happens in war. Like, people still trade with each other. Um, this huge Taiping army running around the part of China where Sun Guofan is, tens, hundreds of thousands of new recruits coming to him, but. You know, so even where this looks impressive, there's there's an edge to it where it's not going to work out for the Taiping. There's no time to train them, no weapons to equip them, no food to feed them. Strategic concerns, um, basically, like, like another weird thing that happens is the commander tries to send a letter through the British to some other Taiping forces, um, and the British consul... Uh, at one of the cities in what is now Wuhan, there in central China, the consul kept this strategically important letter as a souvenir. So the Taiping communications didn't happen. So the, this huge army pulls out of the conflict uh, to the uh, commander's base area so they could rely on logistics to supply the new recruits and to train them. They didn't want to face the force of experienced troops under Zhang Guofan, one of Zhang Guofan's commanders. So basically, so basically, things weren't working out for the Taiping in this particular campaign to raise the siege of Anqing, which was a critical step toward successfully besieging Nanjing, the rebel capital. 
uh, okay, we can finally wrap up this episode. So, Zhongguofan, through extreme circumstances, is hanging on, uh, besieging this critical city on the Yangtze. And, and his gamble, uh, hoping that the emperor, that he, he could squeeze out a little more time so that the emperor couldn't send him more direct commands to peel off troops to, uh, to reinforce the capital at Beijing, um, you know, that, that paid off. And through everything, he's hanging in there. Um, luck is one of the most important things in warfare. Holding out long enough for reinforcements to arrive, the enemy not attacking when they could close in for the kill, when they could win everything, they just don't attack. Um, the weather is miraculously good or bad. Uh, you or the enemy are held up. You're not not allowed to to go ahead. And the other side makes progress, and you don't. Well, things were kind of starting to stack up for Zhongguofan. That the Taiping knew he was a threat. They were trying to take him out, but they didn't manage it. Um, we'll come back to that next week. So thank you for coming along for this episode. If you'd like to support the podcast, rate and review on all platforms, share with your friends. You can go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast if you'd like to contribute monetarily. And please send me an email at chineserevolutions at gmail.com. And once again, I've been your host, Nathan Bennett. I will see you next episode.